Finnovate showcases cutting-edge banking and financial technology through a global conference series featuring short-form demos and thought leadership. Now, the conversation continues on the Finnovate podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Finnovate podcast. We've got a special one today. Joining me, we have David Chang, principal at DCM. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Greg. I'm very happy to be here. Perfect. So uh, start with just a quick introduction, let people know who you are and you know what your role is there at DCM. So I'm David, uh, principal at DCM. We are a global venture capital firm with $4 billion in assets. Um, we've been investing for about 25 years, invest in the US, Asia, Japan. Um, and um, my focus is really on seed and series B investments in consumer fintech, digital health, and just broad consumer services. Cool. So, you know, what we're going to talk about today is uh, bias in finance and, and how we can use fintech to help overcome that bias. I think, you know, most people, or at least most people who want to anyway, have a general sense of kind of where that bias comes from in a financial space. But can you give a, a couple of examples of bias that sort of spring readily to mind when you think about the financial arena? Yeah, I mean, I think I want to first uh, start off by saying that a lot of this inherent bias in financial services and, and traditional financial institutions doesn't come from a bad place or any bad intention. If you think about financial institutions like banks and credit unions and a lot of these traditional like uh, places, it comes from the fact that they need to minimize risk um, and make sure that their checking accounts, their loans don't kind of like aren't subject to fraud or default. So as a result of that, they have to use a lot of like older heuristics like FICO. Sure. No, I think that's an important place to start because it is true that, you know, obviously there are some bad actors in the space, right? There are people who engage in behavior that a lot of us would find morally reprehensible. But to a large degree, a lot of this, as you point out, does come from the standpoint of it's you know, minimizing risk. It's using imperfect tools, which we have created to try and avoid risk. Um, and now we're at a point where we can really start to examine those tools and think about, you know, what bias is creeping in here. Um, so talking about, you know, the, the FICO score in particular, and we don't need to dunk on FICO too much, um, but I think it's worth holding them up as an example because there are some biases that kind of naturally come in there. Can you talk about, you know, where those biases come from and, and how they mm -hmm. show up in that FICO score? Yeah, I mean, you'll definitely need to hold me back because I, I love dunking on, on FICO. And I think when you're the gold standard, you, you kind of, uh, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? You deserve to be dunked on. Um, I mean, I think originally FICO, FICO was created to, uh, to remove bias from the system. Um, and one of the big investment theses that we've been investing in over the past five years is ways to create different financial products that don't use FICO and take a more forward-looking approach. But you know, just getting back to FICO, it is based on a lot of historical data and heurist, uh, historical heuristics. Um, unfortunately, if your FICO score falls below a certain range, so around a 620, you're basically credit invisible and, and that you don't really exist in the American credit system. And one of the bigger reasons for why you may not have a strong FICO score is you didn't have generational wealth or you weren't exposed to that at an early age and you just don't have any credit history. Unfortunately, that affects a lot of Blacks and Hispanics. So I think one of the big things, that we, big opportunities that we saw was what's an alternative way to start uh, underwriting people in one of the big ways we found was using cash flow data. So some of our companies like Bridget, Cherry, they use cash flow data to assess the credit worthiness of a consumer. 
and provide them with lending products that they wouldn't have been able to get through the traditional credit ecosystem. An earlier example of that is also SoFi, which again, like if you, you know, it doesn't matter what your credit score is. If you graduated from a good school, you have a good job, your chances of default are probably pretty low. And now obviously their underwriting methodology is now more complicated than that. But um, that was one opportunity they identified uh, about 10 years ago in giving people better mortgage rates, better opportunity to refinance their student loans. And I think we're just kind of getting started in finding new ways to underwrite people. Sure. No, I think this is one of the major challenges of our time when it comes to fintech, right? Looking at the number of people who are categorically excluded from being able to participate in the financial system through no fault of their own, through their background, through the you know places which they're born or who their parents are. Um, you know, if you don't have parents who can come in and co-sign your first credit card, you know, when you're growing mm -hmm. up, you know, how do you start to establish that credit history? It's a real challenge. But now we're at a point where there are a lot of other data points that are available. There's a lot more complexity as we look at really trying to understand who people are as individuals. So look, turning the conversation now towards fintech. Um, what are some areas where you think you know, fintech in particular can can help here? You, you mentioned a couple in, in the way that you know SoFi is able to take other information into account. What are the biggest areas where you think fintech can really help? Uh, everything. I mean, if you look at the entire banking stack, right? I'll, I'll just go line by line. But you have like core banking, checking account, savings account, debit cards. You have lending, obviously, which SoFi, Bridget, Cherry, they all do. Um, faster, cheaper payments, whether it's buying something online or uh, it's you know removing the kind of fraud and like the interchange, um, wealth management, trading, like democratizing that and allowing more and more people to be able to build wealth, wealth through investing, um, which I know is slightly controversial given the events of the past six months, um, and also like broadening access to credit cards. Um, so I mean, there's interesting companies that are using different methods to give people credit cards and allowing them to actually build credit or, or rather different credit builder products. Um, so I think like we're, we're just at the early innings of the digitization of a lot of FinTech, even though it seems like there's been a lot of investment that's gone into the space. Um, and once you start doing that, you can start taking the uh, a more real-time approach to fixing a lot of the bias that we're talking about. Whereas a bank branch is going to operate the same way that it's probably operated for the past 50 years. Whereas a digital fintech company is going to look at their their entire funnel essentially, like their approval rates, their delinquency, their fraud, and they're going to be fixing that on a real time basis. Um, and you get a really interesting alignment between doing the right thing and what's ultimately good for the business. I love it when that lines up. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's really pretty. You know, doing the right thing and having it be good for the business. Um, and I think one of the things that you know we, we're talking about here is giving people access to uh, financial products, which a lot of us take for granted, right? Where a lot of us assume that anybody can you know build wealth in certain ways or borrow in certain ways, and that's obviously not the case. Um, one of the limiting factors around this, I think, is um, the the data that we have. Now we've talked about there being obviously a lot more data available now than maybe there was historically. I think that's certainly true, but one of the problems that we have is this this data that we have does contain some bias in it, right? There's inherent bias, even in the data points that we have. And if you build an application on biased data, then you end up with a biased application. Can you talk about that hurdle? Because I think a lot of people get stuck there in trying to think about how they can move past that and, and really go out and get some data, which they can feed in to help alleviate that problem. Yeah, again, it, it really comes to the fact that a lot of these, these companies, 
well, not a lot, all of these companies are built from the ground up in a digital way and, and they're online internet companies. So as a result of that, they're looking at their approval rates or, you know, their, their funnel essentially on a almost daily or, or uh, weekly basis. So if their approval, approval rates are not good, then that affects their customer acquisition costs. So they need to then find a way to remove that bias and uh, increase their approval rates. If they are not doing underwriting in a good way, then that's going to affect their delinquency and ultimately their loss rates. Um, so they need to remove that bias again because it's important for their business and, and also because it's good for increasing their total addressable market. Um, whereas, you know, like FICO, basically, there's not much incentive for them to change. Um, it's It doesn't affect their approval rates. It's not about improving their TAM. The other thing is because of the fact that you can reach so many more customers as a result of these being internet companies, we're seeing com companies that serve a very, very specific subgroup, whereas the original financial institutions and banks, not to I mean, not naming any like names, like they are meant to serve everybody. And when you serve everyone, then unfortunately, you're going to try to uh, build off of some very um, historical and, and broad heuristics. And as a result, you may be biased against certain subgroups, which you deemed not large enough for you to serve. Yeah, and no, I think that's a really good point there too. I mean, if you look at it, bias is basically making assumptions about people without knowing those individuals, right? You, exactly. you make an assumption on them. And, and now we're in a position where we have the ability to get more and more data. We can treat people as individuals. We have organizations now, uh, financial institutions that can treat groups of individuals who share commonalities. And there are a lot more options for people to find a financial institution that really understands them, who gets them as a, as a person. And so you look at this idea, which is a really hot topic in fintech right now, personalization, hyper-personalization, um, you know, hyper-hyper-personalization, however far you want to go down, whatever adjectives you want to add. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, really you look at this from the standpoint of it's, it's very smart from a customer uh, knowledge standpoint. You can engage these customers a lot more effectively the more you know about them, but also it does fight against this bias because you get data points that treat people as individuals that kind of ignore a lot of the other less essential information, you know, racial characteristics, you know, where they're born and really looks at them as individuals. And, and I think that's a really crucial piece that people maybe don't think about when they think about personalization, mm -hmm. it kind of being a, a really crucial tool in the fight against bias. Yeah. Um, I, like I do want to turn the conversation a little bit here because um, there's another interesting piece, sorry to, to cut you off, but I want to make sure we have time for this. Um, one of the things I found fascinating uh, learning about kind of you and your uh, and DCM style, you know, there's in, some people in fintech have this kind of winner take all mindset, this idea that you know, we have to be world beaters, our companies have to be world beaters. I know you take a slightly different approach, you're kind of getting away from that winner take all standpoint. And I think it's, it kind of ties into what we're talking about right now. Can you tell a little bit about your stance on kind of how you view um, you know, the companies that you work with and, and how you want them to, where you want them to get to in the market? Yeah, I mean, so two, two points on that. Um, the the first more general point is that it's, it's a big, big market. Um, you know, ju just community banks alone, there's 5,000 community banks that manage over 5 trillion in assets. Um, and then if you look at in totality in the US, there's 11,000 banks that manage almost 20 trillion in assets. Um, we have so many banks in, in the U.S., and I think that's just a proxy for how big the market is for fintech. Um, not to mention, you know, we, we invest in China, Japan, Korea, too, right? And those are ginormous fintech markets. Um, so that's the first point in that, and the more general point in that it, it's so huge, it's impossible for one company to be winner takes all, right? 
Um, the second point is that, again, like back to this point of personalization, I think we're realizing that you can build a great business by finding your particular demographic that you're serving. Um, when we first invested in SoFi, it was like, the question was, how many people are there who can't get a mortgage or have their student loan refinanced and went to a great school and, and work and have a great job? How many people are there really like that? It turns out like a ton. Um, when we first invested in Bridget, it was like, how many people are being affected by overdraft fees? Well, like, you know, these banks make $30 billion a year in overdraft fee revenue. So it turns out a ton. Um, and I think now you're seeing a lot of these newer companies that are like, we are a neobank for XYZ, or we are a debit card for this group. And it turns out there are a lot of those people because um, and what's really interesting is the messaging for a lot of financial institutions before was, hey, we're a bank for everyone. When actually, actually, that makes you a bank for a lot of people, not a bank for a lot of people who don't fit that like quote unquote everyone group. Whereas some of these newer uh, fintechs are, we are this, we are this financial institution. We are like a checking account. We are a wealth management company. We are a cash advance company for this group of people, and that makes it possible to then serve everyone in that group of people. And then so you just gotta then find the one that's personalized to you, and you're gonna get the best experience possible for you. No, I love that. I think that's really smart. I mean, in some sense, setting yourself up to kind of, you know, we want to be the the winner take all the, the giants in this space is setting yourself up for failure because it's really difficult to engage everybody. You can't be all things to all people. And what you can totally. be is the perfect thing for a group of people. And, and I think looking at it from that standpoint, that lines up really well with what we see a lot of companies on the Finnovate stage doing, trying to reach out to different communities, trying to find these um, pockets where people are being underserved for one reason or another. And, and there's opportunities there. There's a lot of opportunities there for people who are able to dial in, find a group who's being underserved and serve them. And I think, you know, to your point, you may end up being surprised at how large some of those communities end up growing to become. If you look at, you know, targeting people again, as individuals, people who um, have a certain set of characteristics that, uh, you know, make them aligned as a group that you can then reach out to. Um, but really, you know, you understand this group, you understand these people, what makes them tick. And that's, I think, what really is, is helpful. So I'm conscious of time, um, but I do just want to quickly ask a question. Um, we've danced around. Uh, what kind of moral or social obligations do you think the fintech industry has, given all of these different factors that we're talking about here? A ton. I mean, nowadays, the role they're serving, people are literally quite literally relying on these fintechs for their basic necessities. And I think you just look at like the PPP disbursement, uh, you know, last year, like these fintechs like Square uh, and Chime, they were the ones that were able to disperse these payments faster than any other financial institution. And that just shows you how important they are to these people's lives. Yeah, it's true. I and mean, with great power comes great responsibility, I think is the um, mm -hmm. is the phrase, but it's you're, you're spot on. I think there's there's so much that fintech has the ability to do and that's thrusted into a position where um, you know the only the only industry that can really do certain things and so we have to treat that obligation with with respect and make sure we're using that mm -hmm. to bring um, you know happiness and joy to people. Um, so last question for you. Uh, what advice do you have for innovators who are looking at this, you know, listening to this episode, trying to balance the idea that they need to be profitable with the idea that they need to be socially responsible? And I think this is a difficult one for people to really get information on, you know, to, to kind of reassure themselves that they're on the right track. Are there any pieces that you can share that people should be looking out for in their own uh, businesses to make sure that they're moving the right direction and, and not you know, leaving a lot of bias or a lot of other red flags out there? 
Yeah, I, I think the nice thing about fintech is there are two inherent forces and functions. One more, um, what's the word? One that's one that's more on the onus of the company, and what one that's more external. The the first being that because you are operating financial services, if your customers financial health does not improve or actually gets worse, it will not be good for your business. Um, so the way I kind of think about it is a lot of ESG companies will, will talk about tracking double bottom line, right? So like um, there's, there's two metrics that they're tracking towards. Similarly for FinTech companies, um, each one of them, there is an objective financial health marker that you can track. So are they saving in fees? Is there, are their savings increasing? Um, is there access to, I don't know, is there disposable income increasing? Is there wealth increasing? And if over time, if these markers are getting worse and you, these things are all knowable, right? Because the nice thing about being built on top of a lot of these APIs like Plaid is that you can see uh, a lot of their banking data. And if these things aren't improving, then you're probably not doing a great service to your users. And the forcing function there is not just, you know, out of social responsibility or, or moral good, even though that is a driver, is that these customers are not going to be great customers for you from an LTV point of view if their financial health is not improving. Um, that's just going to be the case. Like they're they're going to either churn or they're not going to be able to afford your service or generate revenue for you. So I think that in addition to the social responsibility, there's, um, you know, it, it aligns with your business goals. The second thing is that because this is such a regulated industry, you're not going to get too far by not doing a good service to users or doing things that are uh, morally you know, reprehensible because regulators are eventually going to come down. Now, I'm not saying that you should just wait until regulators slap you on the wrist, but um, that's kind of the nice thing about working in such a highly regulated industry is that a lot of times you don't know if something's not, not going right. True. Yeah. And no, I think you're right. There are some, you know, safety checks built in. And and I think, you know, thinking about it less as a balancing act between profits and social responsibility and thinking about it more as, you know, acting in a responsible way is the path to profitability is another um, really good shift that more people need to start uh, taking on board. So, um, well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I think we could probably go on for quite a bit longer here, but we do have to draw a line. Um, David, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a real pleasure. No, Greg, the pleasure is all mine. This is really fun. The Finnovate podcast is produced by Informa Connect in association with Provoke.fm Media. Check out Finnovate.com for information on Finnovate's upcoming shows and to learn how you can get involved. The discount code Finnovate Podcast will save you 20% on tickets to all of our events. And you can email us at info at for information on sponsoring, speaking, or demoing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.